Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Hokies Press Pass Podcast. Alongside Andy Bitter, the Virginia Tech football beat writer for the Roanoke Times, this is Aaron McFarling, sports columnist for the Roanoke Times. We've got some space to breathe in this show today. We're going to get uh, we're going to get into the UNC butt whooping. We will also get into UNC academic truthers who have been assailing uh, Andy for the last ten days, uh, even even before the game, weren't they? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. So just the last couple of days. Some interesting exchanges. We'll talk a little bit about social media in a broad sense. Um, Fuente not happy with uh, Cam Phillips speaking for him. Uh, we'll get into the Duke matchup, break all of it down, get into Andy's poll, and conclude with a prediction as usual. Andy, the final score, 59-7. to The largest margin of victory ever for Virginia Tech in an ACC game. Your thoughts? I think you hit it with it was a butt whooping. Uh, I mean, I don't know how else to describe that game. I I was honestly taken aback with how bad North Carolina was. Uh, You had seen them against Virginia. You had said, uh, you know, they weren't a very good team. I think I had to see it to believe it with my own eyes. Uh, it, It looked like they had never blocked anybody in practice before. I mean, they gave their quarterbacks no shot. Uh, I think you kind of wonder, oh, how are these quarterbacks so bad? Are they, you know, throwing all these interceptions and incompletions? Then you look at the kind of protection they have, and you go, oh, that's how it's happening. And receivers weren't getting open, running backs weren't finding holes. It was just a complete mess from start to finish uh, for North Carolina. I guess the only thing they could hang their hat on is the fact that the defense didn't give up <laughs> any offensive points for a quarter and a half. Uh, then I think Virginia Tech scored on six of seven drives or something like that in the second half. So. Uh, yeah, just an absolute uh, disemboweling. I, I don't know what, what better word there is to describe how badly Virginia Tech beat UNC on Saturday, but uh, when it's a 52-point margin, it's the biggest win uh, margin of victory uh, for Virginia Tech since it's joined the ACC. I think you just have to call it what it is. It was a butt whooping. Yeah. Disemboweling is a great word. I, I think it's got a, well, packs a more visceral punch than most words. It's good this time of year on it, Halloween. It is. It's an excellent it fits word. In. Um, yeah, I went back and listened to our podcast from last week on Friday, I think it was, and I was listening to it, I was like, man, I was kind of harsh on these these Tar Heels. I'm going to look really stupid if they come out there and, and make a game of this. But uh, it, it was vindicated by their performance. And then um, before we get to the UN, UNC truthers, I want to get to this uh, the Stroman. You wrote about Stro- Greg Stroman this week. He had a 91-yard uh, kick return? Yes. Punt return? What was it? Punt, punt return. Punt return. Um, and that's number five for him? Four in his career, tied with Andre Davis and Frank Loria for second on the all-time list. D'Angelo Hall, number one with five. And you talked to uh, Andre Davis a little bit. Uh, tell me what he had to say about I did. Career. First of all, what a great interview. Mm-hmm. Like I asked him like in the offseason, I kind of look for podcast uh, subjects to possibly come back to. I think he'd be a great one to revisit in you know February or March when there's nothing going on. So hopefully I can uh, lock something like that down in the future. Uh, you know, he is obviously somebody with some punt return credentials. Uh, I think he said what impresses him so much about Stroman is sort of the vision that he has to set up a return and then just how smooth he is. I mean, you saw that return. 
he kind of bided his time a little bit, went right, and then to his left, and then he cut back across the field. And he, you know, uh, the way Andre described it, he's sort of like slithering through the defense or meandering through the. Well, these squirting. Yeah, kept... these weren't sharp cuts. It wasn't like he was juking guys like that. It was just like it was almost like a PlayStation where it's just this smooth, like controlled glide through the defense a and slalom. Yeah, <laughs> it looks very smooth when he does it. Uh, so, you know, he's very fast, but he's not quite like a lot of punt returners where you see them like do jukes and stuff like that. I think I described Davis as just like a straight speed guy. He was a track guy that was really good. Eddie Royal was really shifty back there. D'Angelo Hall was kind of the total package, uh, as, as a punt returner. I feel like Stroman is just a very smooth returner and he's very effective at it. I mean, he's, uh, 13.6 yards per return now this year. That's five yards better than anything he's done before. He has two punt returns for touchdowns. Uh, one more, he tied the single season mark at Virginia Tech, held by D'Angelo Hall and Andre Davis. Uh, just very impressive as a punt return. He's done his entire career, but I feel like this year he's really taken it to a next level where you know, every time he touches the ball now, I feel like he has a chance to take it to the house. Yeah, I mean, I, he's just got that ability. I was going to say, you, you – I can't tell you how many times we've been in the press box and you've said Strowman's probably going to take this one back. And it hasn't happened every time, but uh, I'm sure fans feel that same way. You know, there's that sense of anticipation that when you have a great special teams player like that, that's, that's hard to beat. Well, UNC had a punt late uh, where they had a false start penalty, so they were backed up, and the punter had his heels on the the back of the goal line. I'm like, man, if they don't come after this and set up the block, like it, it was a pretty wide margin, so I figured they wouldn't come after it. Uh, to block it. It might have even been after the Dion Newsom block, so I'd, you know, I'd be kind of rubbing it in if you're going all out with a punt rush here. But Strowman was back there returning. I'm like, man, I feel like he might have a chance on this one. When you have sort of that, uh, you know, get the ball around the 50, you don't have that much room to, to make up to, to get to the end zone. He didn't break it on that one, but it just feels like every time he's back there, it's like something special could happen on this play if he has just a little bit of daylight. Well, sticking with my typical Thinking of a tweet 30 hours after it would have been relevant, uh, we really missed an opportunity to say that Stroman boomeranged that thing right back uh, across the field, didn't we? We did. I was feeling too so good about my didgeridoo tweet early in the game with Oscar Bradman. I'll be honest, I thought about that one in week three, I think it was. Uh, I even told you. I'm like, I've got one, and I just sat on it because I needed to wait for the right moment, and I, I feel like the moment was right when they downed it at the one-yard line there. And you had it on a day where there was two Aussie punters in action. That's, That's it, true, it, it yes. Jacks it up a little. What did you think of the ceiling is Ted Roof that I said? I didn't quite – Get it? Get it in the in the context of what you were referring to, but it was a UNC reference with the ceiling is the roof. It was a Ted Roof reference, which I'm all about. It I just I blindly retweeted it. I'm like, it doesn't need context or to make sense. It was a good enough tweet to just retweet. It had layers to it. Okay, okay. Here's what I'm thinking. <laughs> you know, they're getting killed, right? But uh, Ted Roof is kind of your standard average college football coach and he, he just kind of exemplifies average and it, the ceiling for unc right now feels like ted roof i feel like he's a slightly better than average defensive coordinator and a very below average head coach <laughs> okay i think he's a pretty good golfer i think doug golfed with him one time well, i think randy golfed with him a couple times <laughs> and i think the second time <laughs> ted roof asked out of randy happy's <laughs> team because he didn't want to golf with him for four and a half hours uh, I believe that was the story from the ACC kickoff a couple years ago. Well, it wasn't just on Twitter where we had some fun with some of the the bloodletting there. I mean, obviously the 
the academic stuff at, at UNC, we talked about it last week, and it was low-hanging fruit after a result like this for everyone to jump on board with it. Uh, your lead was something along the lines of, uh, you know, the NCAA didn't install a bowl ban or institute a bowl ban, but uh, Virginia Tech did on Saturday. And, and that's uh, – you drew the ire of some people. Uh, give, give us the tenor of some of these discussions you've been having on Twitter. Well, first of all, I, I tweeted that as well. I put that into a self-contained tweet and put that out there, and it got like 600 retweets and 1,200 likes. I've never gotten that many retweets or likes on a tweet. And what, was that making fun of North Carolina in that situation? Yes. Should I have been a little more professional in that situation? Perhaps. Let's just say that the argument that North Carolina used in this whole academic fraud case – the lack of a punishment, like you've opened yourself up to a little bit of ridicule with this. If there's nothing else that comes out of this, you have to accept the fact that people are going to make jokes about the fact that you had fake classes for a while. Some of these UNC fans out there just can't even admit that there was any wrongdoing in the classes themselves. That's why I call them UNC academic truthers. They were just out for blood on Sunday, it was Sunday, and I, I had gotten somebody had responded to that tweet, and it just it got the snowball roll. Like it, it was just like you know not to get into arguments on Twitter. Uh, I think somebody said don't wrestle with a pig in the mud because you'll just get muddy and the pig enjoys it. I think that's what it was. Getting into these arguments, and I had like five or six of them going concurrently, so it was just overwhelming. I just posted my poll. Online, I was my daughter was napping. I was waiting for uh, the the coaches poll to come out first, the AP poll next to tweet it out. So I was just kind of on Twitter, and it just kept coming, and it just kept going more and more. And these people are like, you know, the the News and Observer is fake news, and they just like they're just like gaslighting you with all this information and just trying to overwhelm you and make you question what you know about the thing. And even if you cite reports from previously, they're like, oh, that's not the real truth on it. This is the real truth. It's like. I mean, it's straight out of the Trump playbook with a lot of this stuff on how people approach this. And it's just – it's mind-boggling to me that there can't even be sort of an understanding that – I mean, even within the NCAA report, they didn't like exonerate UNC in this situation. They just said, there's not – this is shady what you were doing, but there's not a specific bylaw that we can hit you on on this. That They, they essentially right. said this is troubling what was going on. They yeah. basically said we really want to do something. Yeah, we, we really want to do something. You probably kept athletes eligible because of this, and you know it, we just can't like nail it down. And the UNC people – some let me say that some UNC people have taken this as – they exonerated us. They couldn't even do it. Seven years, they couldn't find a single thing. It's like, no, they found plenty. Mm -hmm. They just couldn't you know, put it together in a way that fit the NCAA sanctions structure. So, uh, yes, I understand why the NCAA did not punish UNC. It was a very, you know, escaped by a very legal definition of what should be punished with this. But it does not in any way, like, condone what happened at UNC. And I feel like a lot of these Tar Heels fans, or at least the ones that were interacting with me on Twitter, just miss that connection between the two. Well, better you than me having to deal with that crap, man. That was... But going back to your original tweet, you said 600 retweets, 1,200 likes, something like that. That that 
is something to be proud of. But then you go on Lady Gaga and you see she tweeted what she had for breakfast and has 10,000. So you got a ways to go, my man. Well, maybe people will like my breakfast more now that they have seen this. 609 <laughs> retweets, 1,300 likes. That's, that, that's the most I've ever had. I didn't set out to do that. I just thought it was a snarky, clever tweet to put out there. When I hit the send button on the ceiling is Ted Roof, I was envisioning numbers in, the, in that <laughs> department. I think I got 10 likes. Sit back and let the profit roll in with the retweets. <laughs> Four minute work week. All right. Well, did, did you want to talk about yeah, the social I do, media? I do want to talk about social media. And I'm kind of stealing this from, I think it was the podcast, the Joe Posnanski, uh, Michael Schurer podcast, where they, they, they debated whether social media is actually a benefit to society in, in totality, you know, in, in the grand um, analysis. Is it, <laughs> is it beneficial? And given what you just came away from, I'm not sure that that's going to help social media in your eyes but where would you fall on that on that spectrum i would say it's a net positive even though there are a lot of negatives associated with it and maybe my faith was restored in this whole process uh in the back and forth with some of the unc fans it just kind of escalated a little bit uh this one guy came back at me after I said that they had thrown their academic reputation under the bus, because they sort of had to get around this thing. They said, no, 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 everybody that was available, these fraud classes were available to everybody, not just athletes. If that's your argument, that's sort of throwing your academic reputation under the bus. Uh, he came back with, only morons like you, <laughs> only with morons like you, every metric apps rankings proves you're full of it. Uh, spelled your incorrect, so I came back with the proper... Uh, spelling of your which virginia tech fans took a lot of delight in and i'm like i'm just ending it with that uh <laughs> i tweeted out the screenshot and i'm like okay i have asked for this but now i am asking out of it my daughter's awake it's nice outside we're gonna go outside i'm just gonna get away from this for a while uh, and i thought that was sort of the end of it I, you know, I still had comments streaming in from unc fans and stuff like that the next day uh the author of this particular tweet emailed me to apologize. I have never experienced this in my life. It was a heartfelt, sincere apology. I was taken aback by the fact that this person sought me out to apologize. He, he said, you know, that's not me. I got carried away. Uh, you know, I'm embarrassed by the fact that I did that. You know, I came back. I'm like, you know, I probably got a little worked up in this. I just, you know, just trying to point out kind of the absurdity of the whole UNC situation. I think there was an understanding there. And I came away from that. I'm like, you know what? The world is not that bad after all. And then later in the afternoon, somebody hit me with like 10 straight tweets like, you're so full of it. Here's this. Read this. Read that. I'm like, I just had to mute the guy. I'm like, all right. I just need to end this whole thing. So there was that ray of sunshine in social media that it just – just when I thought I was out, it pulled me back in with how terrible it was uh, shortly after well, that. Well, at least that one Twitter troll's heart grew three sizes that day. It really was. That, I, I don't even think it was like a troll. I think it's just people that get very worked up about certain things. And these UNC fans have taken it from every direction. And like I realized that the people that are there now had nothing to do with this. It's just sort of – it's an institutional thing. You wonder, you know, how do you let it slide then? I mean what's the – what's preventing from anybody else in the future doing this? Uh, you know, this thing wrapped up, I want to say like 2011 or something like that. So, you know, the guys that are on the team now were in middle school when this thing happened. So, yeah, I understand the argument from that. There's nothing – these players, why are they going to be harmed by this whole thing? But I think, you know, coaches – Roy Williams was still around at that point. I mean, I feel like there's some sort of responsibility that needs to take place there. That was my primary argument. Okay, read the tweet again from Bolt, the one that uh, sparked that 
email exchange eventually. Uh, only with morons like you, every metric, apps, rankings proves you're full of it. Here is what I love about social media. I scroll. I was reading that that whole feed, and some guy, and I wish I could give him credit. I don't know who it was, said, "But the apps, Andy, the apps." <laughs> Think of the apps. <laughs> And I, I was wondering the same thing when I read the original tweet. This is Tim Sullivan. <laughs> okay. Good job, Tim Sullivan. Sola VT. Uh, <laughs> VT. But the apps, Andy, the apps. That is what tw- that's what Twitter is for. I want to laugh. I want to joke. I want to be stupid. The, that lightened the mood a little bit. That was good. What do you think he meant by the apps? Uh, <laughs> the applications? The- I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe like the like apps that have ranking. I, I don't know. Was, I don't know exactly. It was exactly. the perfect response. It was the perfect response. Okay. Appetizers. <laughs> I think that's what it was. Appetizers. Speaking of get your name out your get my name out your mouth. Um, I guess that's spelled M O U F mouth. Uh, Justin Puente did not like some quotes being attributed to him or some feelings being attributed to him without him actually coming out and publicly saying it himself. Uh, give us that little uh, flap this week and how that developed. Uh, Cam Phillips after the game, uh, you know, he's a pretty good quote. He's on the podium. He's talking about the win. He, he gave a little dig at UNC as well. He said, uh, you know, I think it was what, about 65, 70 degrees out there uh, referencing the rain game last year that a lot of, UNC fans would discount or disregard when they're talking about stuff. Uh, you know, he had a comment. He said, every you know player coach has that team that they enjoy beating more than other teams. And I think this team for is that for Coach Fu, referring to Coach Fuente. Uh, did not go over well with Fuente necessarily. I wouldn't say he was like raving mad or anything, but and, uh, Norm Wood from the Newport newspaper uh, Daily Press asked Fuente about it yesterday. He read the quote from Cam, and it wasn't like a joking response, like, oh, I, I'll talk for myself. You know, it was a stern, not joking. It's like Cam speaks for Cam. Cam mm-hmm. does not speak for me. And it was just like, oh, okay, this is maybe a little more serious than uh, what you thought in the app. It's not kind of a joking thing. Ha ha, yeah, no, everybody likes beating UNC. Uh, I don't think Fuente liked the fact that uh, somebody else was saying that about him or publicized that fact. A, I believe it, especially given the response, I believe it especially to be true. I, I think <laughs> right. that I think he absolutely does like beating UNC more than the others, just because there's, you know, they're in on, on against each other on a lot of recruits. It's sort of a heated battle like that. They were up towards the top of the division last year. I think maybe the the rain. Uh, qualifiers that people put on last year's win bug him a little bit because that was such a thorough uh, domination in that game. And, you know, honestly, both teams played in the rain. So, you know, why do you say discounted for one team? But uh, B, I don't think Fuente wants anybody to know that. Yeah, if he has those opinions, those are his opinions that he will keep to himself. He's very careful when he talks to the media not to cause a stir or to say anything that's going to be bulletin board material or just regular newspaper article material, quite frankly, because I'm looking for newspaper article material that's, you know, I'm not saying salacious, but just, you know, a little bit lively. He generally avoids that. He's pretty a low-key guy in press settings, and the fact that somebody else would go out and say that a player like Cam, uh, I think he would not like him to do that in the future. Well, here's why I like that it happened. One, it's Cam. I love Cam. You know that. Um, we both really appreciate our opportunities to speak with Cam. 
Cam's about it. <laughs> Which may or may not be limited <laughs> well, in the near future here. I don't right? think like, they hope it be. doesn't affect I, it. I don't think they will be because I think he's among the most self-aware and self-confident athletes I've ever met. I don't think he's going to shrink and say, well, I'll, he just won't say something like that again. He'll just change his uh, approach a little bit on things like that. You know, he'll say, I'm not going to speak for Fuente. The other thing was – I think this humanizes Fuente a little bit too. I mean, there's been a couple instances where I think I've really seen the humanization of Fuente. And one was at Notre Dame when he's standing on the field with his wife after the game and just drinking in this, the noise and the feelings um, of winning on those on that hallowed ground. And the other is getting a little pissed off. I mean, you know, just being like, uh, no, no, we're not doing that. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to allow um, – other people to 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 speak on my behalf even if it's even if it's true um so i thought that was good i mean i you know i wasn't at the press conference so i didn't get the you know the whole tenor of it but from what i read the way you you put it in paper you said that he said sternly you made a point to say he said sternly i read it as okay we're seeing a little bit of the emotional side of of fuente come out a little bit yeah and it's it's interesting because uh andrew carter uh who covers unc or or Covers it for the next couple of months, I think. I think he's transitioning into an investigative role uh, with the News and Observer. Uh, and is not a, a guy that's out there for headline grabbing or a clickbaity type of thing. He, he watched the postgame handshake between Fuente and Fedora. And he called it a little – it was very brief. Uh, I think he's noted that there's a little bit of tension between the coaching staffs. I watched it. It was maybe not as icy when I saw it as, as I thought. I guess it – I don't know what I would expect in the post-game handshake between those two. I mean, they just beat him fifty-nine to seven. Are you going to are you going to sit there and give like a Dabo Sweeney hug and like in his ears like oh, I'm so proud of like no you you just want to get out of there in that moment. So I I don't really fault a short handshake in that situation, but I do think between these two staffs and just head-to-head recruiting like that, there's going to be a natural little you know animosity there between the two that. You know, you don't have to be all cheery and lovey between the two staffs like, you know, Virginia Tech and Duke seem to be every time they play there. They're just glowing with praise. And David Cutcliffe is quarterback guru and the best in the game. And, oh, Frank Beamer with his special teams is amazing and Fuente is taking – I mean, it's just this, like, praise fest between the two programs. It's somewhat refreshing when you have a, a team like UNC where it's it's not quite as, as glaring like that. Going back to the handshake, do you find it a little patronizing and a little – I don't know – obnoxious when like a coach that just kicks somebody's tail by 40 goes and does that little lean in and give them some words of encouragement moving forward. I just, to me, I, I think, I think they handled it the right way. Fuente, Fedora just wants to get the hell off the field. Fuente just wants to, you know, go and celebrate, make it quick, get out of there. Yeah. I don't think it needs to be a you know meeting of the minds every time they get there in the midfield. I mean, they talk before the game and stuff like that. I, I think sometimes, uh, some coaches do that for show. Yeah, the I think game. so too. They get out there and they hug it. It's like things look are gonna how, turn around for you, man. I look just how classy. He yeah, is. I just and, I don't know. It's it's a force contrived. Like, every time they do the post game handshake, the photographers and cameramen run out there <laughs> like it is this like moment of the game. Like get the handshake, get the handshake. And I guess it has given us. Uh, you know, such moments as Jim Harbaugh and uh, who was that Detroit coach that kind of freaked out about Harbaugh giving him a stern handshake or Caldwell? something like that. Yeah, no, it was, it was pre-Caldwell. It was the defensive-minded guy. Morning wig? Uh, no, it was post-morning wig. <laughs> it was the guy in between. The defensive coordinator, I think he was for the Titans at one point. 
uh, whose name is escaping me, but he like chased him down the field. And, oh yeah, I remember. Uh, that. It, we, you know, Harbaugh had another one. Pete Carroll was the "What's Your Deal" game when when they I think Stanford ran it up a little bit on them on USC when they were there. There was the the Frank Beamer moment with Mike London where he caught the uh, uh, the handshake where Frank is kind of turning away and it's kind of kind of this. Uh, you know, be please like look to his face. Uh, you know, there are moments like that, but I don't understand why the cameramen and women are rushing out there to get this picture. Like it's going to be the, the Pulitzer moment of the game. Yeah. I, I do like the moment where the teams have just played a, a you know, rock'em sock'em game that comes down to the wire. And you know, there's just a mutual respect about what just occurred on the field. And they take a moment to discuss it or, you know, Hey, the loser, the, the winner tells the loser, Man, that was awesome. The way you guys played, I, I think that's sportsmanship. But the you know the the blowout handshake, I think, can be as fast as possible and just get it over with. More of them should be like the end of that BYU Memphis game a couple years ago when they just have a straight out brawl after the games. <laughs> like, all right, they're not hiding their feelings for each other. No, I'm not advocating. I, I'm not advocating that for real. Come on now. Cam doesn't speak for me. My fists speak for me. <laughs> all right, it's Duke week. Um, and you know, you, you say Duke week and I think over the years we've been conditioned to think, well, it's Duke and Duke is Duke, but you wrote this week that the series has been, you know, you reminded us all that the series has been awfully tight over the recent years, especially since, uh, Cutcliffe has got there, gotten there, uh, summarize what you wrote and, and what, uh, this week entails for tech. Well, I thought it was funny. I wrote uh an article to kick off the week kind of pointing out how close everything was between the series some guy on the facebook page that i have comes back and says what a sensationalistic headline virginia tech's gonna whomp them or you know beat duke really bad they're 16 point favorites or whatever it was this won't even be close and i'm like it's not it's not a sensational like sensationalistic headline to point out how close the series has been in the past. And I even pointed out in the article, you know, Duke has kind of struggled. Virginia Tech's been pretty good this year. But historically, the last four years, this has been as tight as any series Virginia Tech's had. Uh, first of all, they've split it two to two. The road team has won all four games, which is unbelievable to yeah. me. I mean, how, how often do you see that in a series? Uh, every game has been decided by a field goal or less. Uh, I, I think some of the problem people have when I mention some sort of historical trend is they say, oh, things were different at the end of the Frank Beamer era. You know, Justin Fuente coached a game last year against Duke, and it was close. It was 24-21, Virginia Tech won. They turned the tide early on a blocked field goal that uh, you know, Greg Stroman had the block, Adonis Alexander had the return for a touchdown. That kind of opened things up. They did not play that well offensively in that game. You know, Late in the game, it's a three-point contest. Terrell Edmonds gets ejected for targeting. You remember that? Mm. Uh, Duke has a first and 10 at the 50-yard yeah. line. All the momentum. Virginia Tech's playing without one of its star safeties. You're sitting there going, oh, this thing could turn. There's six minutes left in this game. This could be over. Uh, they ended up getting a couple sacks, pushed them back. Uh, Duke punted, and Virginia Tech was able to run the clock out after that. But that was a lot closer than I think what a lot of people even remember last year. They just go, oh, Virginia Tech was rolling last year. They were steamrolling teams. No, they really struggled with Duke. Uh, that quarterback was a rushing threat. I think he had 99 yards in that game last year. Uh, this has been a program that has just sort of been difficult for them to put away, uh, the last couple of years. So, you know, I, you know, we'll get to our predictions in a little bit. I think maybe it might divert from that trend a little bit this year, but historically you cannot sit there and say, Oh, Duke, they're just going to run over Duke because they're terrible. 
No, it's been really close, and they've been a very competitive team. I mean, when, that game in Lane Stadium last time they were here was 45-43 in four overtimes. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of burr in the saddle that Duke has been for Virginia Tech the last couple of years. Well, not to put you on the spot, but did, what was Duke's final record last year? Do you four remember? and eight. Four and eight. Okay. I mean, we're talking. I mean, it's not like they Duke were... is four and four right now. I mean, even if they lose out, they'd be a four and eight team. It, it could be the exact sort of same scenario where this team that probably shouldn't give this ranked Virginia Tech team that much trouble. Uh, does just because they're they're a well coached team that uh, you know presents problems in certain ways. Well, you're making my me consider my prediction a little more deeply, but I do have the trump card ready to go here at the end. So stay tuned for that. Well, Fuente was not thrilled despite the final score of fifty nine to seven. He was not thrilled with the offensive performance against UNC. Uh, you know, any any concern? when you look at it that uh, you know that, that that they weren't as good as the score indicated? Well, you score 59 points. I realize two of those were defensive touchdowns. One of those was a special teams touchdown. Uh, you probably can't come down too hard on the whole thing. Uh, they had 383 yards and 5.2 yards per play. Uh, that is the lowest p- yards per play that they've had in a win this year. So I, I guess from that sense, you could be a little displeased with the way that you got to those points. Uh, his quote on Tech Talk Live was he said that, uh, there's an intensity and a toughness, toughness and intensity that they expect on a, a regular basis there. And they didn't really see that throughout the UNC game. So maybe it's less about stats and production than just how they went about uh, their business offensively. I mean, it was another slow start on offense. It took them until, uh, you know, six minutes left in the second quarter, I think, to score their first touchdown offensively. Uh, that was aided by a 14-0 lead by your special teams and defense, so that takes some of the stress off your offense and they could free up and play. So I think they'd like to see a game where they just come out and they're hitting right away. I mean, the first quarter has not been kind to Virginia Tech all year. They just have not come out of the gates uh, you know, really hot. I mean, as much as I put start fast as one of my three keys every single week, uh, it's it's a key every week. I mean, if they could start fast, they could put some of these games out even earlier than they're doing. And, you know, the fact that they won last week's game by 52 is amazing, given that they had such a slow start offensively. Uh, so, so maybe that's a little bit of a concern. Again, you're, you're really picking nits when it's a 52-point win like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you get defensive scores, anytime you get special team scores, it's going to make the game a little choppier you know, than it, than it would have been if, Teams are just trading possessions, but if you contrast this this blowout victory with the blowout victory that Tech had against Boston College last season, where that really kind of jump started them, and I remember talking to Isaiah Ford before the bowl game, and he said that was the moment we realized what this offense was capable of. We looked around, we looked at the sidelines, and, and Coach even said, "Look over at that sideline at you and at uh, Boston College, a team that." prides itself on on physicality and 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 conditioning and all those things they're they're sucking air over there you know and we didn't really see the tempo and the pace and the and the, and the fluidity i don't think in the in the carolina game and maybe that's something he's looking for as well yeah probably i mean i, I think you know they had a blowout earlier this year against east carolina that was like this where just everything was rolling at once and the offense looked really explosive in that situation it was running the ball well it was hitting on big plays uh, it was hitting on a high, uh, you know, efficiency with passers. You know, I think Josh Jackson had very few incompletions in that game. You know, Jackson was 10 for 20 in that game last week. And I'm not going to, you know, come down hard on stats. It's a very low number of passes even to begin with in the whole thing. But yeah, just think it could have been a little bit sharper from the outset uh, with how they went about their offense. 
Well, on the other side of the ball, they, you know, we talked about sacks last week and how they weren't really getting them. They were getting a lot of pressure. They weren't getting sacks. Well, they got six of them in this game. Uh, that's a lot. And, and you, you know, you're tempted to look at that and say, okay, Bud, Bud Foster's defense is primed for destruction here. Are they, I mean, it, or is it just, is UNC just that bad that it's really hard to tell? It's tough to tell because of how bad UNC is. It still is a positive sign for this defense because I think they were getting a lot of that pressure with just its front four. It's not like Bud was bringing the house every play. They did bring some blitzes uh, that did lead to some turnovers. You know, the the fumble return Ricky Walker had in the first quarter. You know, Mook Reynolds had a glancing blow with a blitz, and then Tremaine Edmonds comes in. The guy fumbles the ball at that point. Uh, that interestingly, that wasn't one of the sacks because it was a fumble. So that was another pressure they had. Uh, the pick six that Reggie Floyd had later in the game. Matua Pawaka came on a blitz and, and batted the ball in the air right to Floyd. So those were some of the pressures they had there. But I think the fact that they got just the front four was able to get so much pressure and get in the backfield is, is encouraging because if you can get that kind of pressure with just your your defensive line and you don't have to bring the house everything, it really opens up what you can do defensively. You can do uh, more exotic coverages. You can surprise people when you're bringing actual pressure, like bringing seven or eight guys coming after the, the quarterback. Uh, you know, I think that was something that Bud mentioned during the bye week and his self-scouting is – uh, you know, maybe be a little bit less predictable when they bring the house, bring that kind of heat and, you know, show something that maybe back off. I think they wanted to, to, you know, mix things up a little bit in terms of when they bring their blitzes and, you know, being able to, to do that, what they did against UNC was at least a positive step forward and that, Hey, uh, if you just need to rely on the defensive line to get in the backfield, they can do that. Yeah. And Duke's offense hasn't been great this year. It hasn't. That's the surprising part. You know, you hear Cutcliffe quarterback guru and, you know, Daniel Jones, I think, has you know, eight touchdowns and six interceptions, something like that. I mean, it's not a very good ratio in that sense. Uh, you witnessed Duke against Virginia. Uh, you know, they looked bad uh, in that game. No, no you I didn't. Did. I thought you were there. I was at the Tech game that oh, day. Okay, I, I saw right. the UNC game. Well, they threw a pick six in that game. I mean, it, it's just something just doesn't seem right with this offense that they have. And that's kind of surprising for historically how they've been. Now, I, I, I would not put it past them to figure things out and come out and be very sh- sharp in a given week just because, you know, that's the reputation that uh, David Cutcliffe has there. But, you know, Duke has kind of been getting by with its defense this year. Uh, surprisingly, they're second in the, the league in sacks to Clemson. They're number one in tackles for a loss. Uh, I think they have the fourth-ranked defense in yardage. They've been very good defensively, and and surprisingly, their offense has been the weak leak this, uh, this wow, year. Wow, that that tackles for loss stat is impressive. I think there given... was something like that last year too. Like there's something about this scheme that they're very good at getting in the backfield and making plays. Dis- disruption, yeah, because you've got a really good defensive line at Clemson and one a really good one at BC and and some other places too. So, all right, uh, I wanted to mention Coleman Fox because at the end of that game uh, on Saturday. <laughs> He moved into second place among rushers for the season on Tech's team. And I think that says something about the competition level, you know, because he's played mostly in, in garbage time. But it says something about Coleman Fox as well. Um, I think I think he's looked really good every time he's been in there. I mean, you could, it's sort of like, you know, you play the schedule you're given. I mean, when you get an opportunity and you're playing against second teamers or whoever you're playing against, you still got to play hard. And it sounded like in Fuente's answer to the question about Coleman Fox this week that perhaps he's noticing that a little more. Is that fair? I 
I don't know if he's noticing more. You know, we keep asking him about it because he keeps producing late in these games. And there's obviously a difference between producing when the score is 0-0 at the beginning and when a team is trailing 52-7 to late. I mean, even if the first team is out there, that that is a defeated, beaten, broken down team at that point. So it makes it a little bit easier for fresh legs to come in there and, you know, hey, I'm you know gung-ho, you know, going to come out here and, and gain lots of yards in that situation. Uh, what Fuente said was, you know, I don't want to discredit what he's done just because it's coming late in games. I mean, he wants to give him credit for getting those yards. And I think he's 5.9 yards per carry, something like that, uh, this season. That's a yard better than anybody else on the team. And like I said, you have to you know, take into account that that's in garbage time, both in wins and losses. He was out there late in the Clemson game as well. Not exactly the tightest coverage or uh, most aggressive defenses in that situation. But, uh, you know, last week, Stephen Peoples didn't play again. He was dressed, but they wanted to hold him out with his ankle that didn't cause him to miss the previous two games. Uh, Deshaun McLeese had an illness. He was not out there. So they really had Trayvon McMillan and then Jalen Holston as the running back. So, uh, you know, Coleman Fox got there a little bit earlier than he did before. I still wonder if all those guys are there and healthy, if he'll have a role, because I think Stephen Peoples uh, is a pretty solid guy at that running back position as well. So when he's healthy, I would imagine that he's going to have a, a pretty significant role out there. When I was a freshman at Maryland, we had more talented pitchers than me on that team. But, you know, I was producing against the MEAC teams and uh, some of the, you know, the Towsons and the UMBCs. I was pitching well. Like, my ERA was really low. And my strikeouts to what to innings was, uh, you know, better than one-to-one. And we would get blown out on the weekend by some, you know, ACC team. And I wouldn't pitch. And I would just wonder, like, what, what would happen – if I got in there, you know, like, and I, that's, that's kind of way I feel about Coleman is like, I would love to see an opportunity to get in there in, in a, in a moment that matters and just see what happens. And, and I know, you know, you're, <laughs> it's big business and you don't want to, uh, you know, have something like that blow up in your face if you don't think he's ready for that kind of thing. But uh, it's it just, there's a natural curiosity that I have on how he would do against a, a really good defense and a really uh, big spot that I'd love to see quenched at some point. Didn't your coach come to you on point and said, all right, McFarlane, it's all on you today. Our bullpen shot. This is your chance. You're getting the start. I needed to go deep into this game. And you lasted like a third of an inning and just got blown up. That's correct. That was against <laughs> James Madison. My parents were there. My wife, my eventual wife was there. My father-in-law was there. Ex-Marine used to fly Reagan in Marine One. And Time this- to show these guys <laughs> what they've been missing. The <laughs> third of an inning, nine runs. I'm done. That, was, right, that was one of my even-numbered years. That was either my sophomore or senior year. I can't remember which. I think it was my senior year. But my freshman and junior years, I was good. And then and I would slack off, and then the, the even-numbered years, I was awful. I was terrible. So, yeah, I mean, I, but I'm not comparing myself to Coleman Fox. He's a, a 10,000 times better athlete than I ever was, but there is a, a sense that uh, you know maybe an opportunity is all that guy needs to, to turn into something else. And speaking of opportunity, Andy, there's a guy that I'd like to talk about who got an opportunity on Saturday? I'm, I'm racking my brain. I'm trying to think of who you could possibly be talking about. That's right. It's time for the Pimpleton Minute. Uh, Pimp got his first carry of his career on Saturday. Picked up a neat and tidy four yards. Nice job, 
Khalil. I thought that he looked excellent. Um, then the ref screwed him. Yeah, you got what? What, what was the the penalty on him? Uh, offensive pass interference. Uh, it's P I M P, not P I, sir. Come on, yeah, ref. you've been saving that for the. Or did uh, you tweet, actually, I did stole you tweet that, that from Nathan Waters, oh, who said that to me. That's after a very that. good one. Well done, Nathan. Uh, yeah, I think it was interference. I thought it was a pretty <laughs> blatant. Uh, was there like a pick play where he had cleared out for the other guy? Uh, incidentally, if you had heard some music in the background previously <laughs> earlier in the podcast, that was Aaron queuing up his pimpled admitted music as I'm trying to speak here. <laughs> Just pure professionalism during this podcast. But yes, a nice moment for Pimpleton finally getting in the stat column there. Well, you know, I think you need glasses. I think the refs need glasses. And I think Fuente needs to give him a little more opportunity. Moving on, let's go to your poll this week. Who are the big movers and shakers in the Andy Bitter poll? Big mover, Notre Dame. Uh, have Notre Dame up to seventh from 12th last week after they just crushed USC. I mean, it wasn't even close. I think it was 49-14 was the score. Uh, that's a really good way. I think people are starting to take note of the fact that Notre Dame is a pretty good team. And it's, it's odd because normally Notre Dame gets the benefit of the doubt ahead of time. And people go, oh, Notre Dame, they must be good. They're Notre Dame. They're way overranked and then end up getting exposed later in the year. Uh, Notre Dame was not ranked coming in this year because it was 4-8 and eight last year. Everybody's like, oh, this team's terrible. They were 4-8, and eight, even though you look at that 4-8 and eight record, a lot of those games could have gone, I think they had like five one-possession games or something like that. A lot of close losses, whereas it's like baseball. When you're really good at one-run games one year, you know the luck changes and you're really bad at them the next year. It's yeah, just, their Pythagorean was yeah, pretty good. That's just how it works out. Uh, you know, They lost to Georgia earlier this year, 20-19 to 19 or something. They lost by a point, uh, which you know, one possession, one point, as Brian Kelly would point out uh, rather condescendingly to a reporter. Uh, I think everybody goes, oh, here it goes again. And then it goes, no, Georgia's really, really good. I have Georgia number two in my poll. And, oh, Notre Dame might be pretty good. They went and they crushed Michigan State when Mich nobody thought Michigan State was good. Now Michigan State is ranked, and they beat them by 20. Uh, they go and beat uh, uh, USC by 35, I think it was. I mean, they win those two games by 55 points. I have both those teams still in my poll. So that's uh, really good wins on their resume. Uh, better than a lot of those teams, uh, you know, I have them ahead of Wisconsin, who still has not beaten anybody good. Uh, I know Badgers fans. I'm aware of the Badgers. I watch them. You know, it's my alma mater, so I pay a little bit of extra attention to them every week. They just have not beaten anybody good. And that's, you know, that's not necessarily their fault. Nebraska's way down. BYU is as bad as it's ever been uh, this season. So you kind of lose some stuff there. But I think their best win this year might be, Northwestern, Florida Atlantic. I mean, their best win is not a very impressive win. Uh, I have Notre Dame ahead of Miami. I think they've they've played a better schedule than Miami and have looked more impressive in their wins. Miami sort of uh, getting by with a rabbit's foot the last couple weeks, I think. Uh, so that was the big mover in my poll. The other thing, I, I, I rearranged some teams that I thought I had wrong last week where I now put Oklahoma fifth, Clemson sixth, and Ohio State uh, I dropped them down to eighth, actually, from fifth. I think I was a little bit too high after watching uh, high on Ohio State. I should say not high. Uh, high on Ohio State after watching them live last week or watching them on TV last week when it was the bye. Uh, so, you know, thinking about it more, you look at Oklahoma's resume. They beat Ohio State. They should probably be ahead of them. That Iowa State loss, which I thought was so bad. I actually have Iowa State ranked now, so that doesn't look so bad. 
Uh, I did some shuffling there. I feel better about the order that I have those teams in than I did last week. Well, nobody can say you don't put thought into this. I mean, you definitely no, care. Pe- people say that. You you would not. You'd be surprised. That goes back to our earlier people discussion. People say that quite a, quite a bit, actually. Lighten up, folks. Lighten up. He's trying. Uh, where do you have the Hokies? I have them 11th. Oh, come on, Vader. Yeah, they are right one spot behind Miami. Honestly, I think those two are interchangeable at this point. Uh, you know, it won't be long till we find out they're going to play each other in a head-to-head game here next week. Uh, move them past USC. Obviously, USC dropping down quite a bit. I flipped Oklahoma State and Virginia Tech. Uh, right now, Oklahoma State's best win is probably Texas Tech. Uh, it's still not very impressive, the schedule that they played. Virginia Tech has at least beaten West Virginia. Uh, they both have losses to you know uh, top 10 teams. Tech lost to Clemson. Uh, Oklahoma State lost to TCU, which I have number three in my poll ahead of Penn State. Uh, so yeah, just looking at their full resumes right now, I decided to flip them after Oklahoma State went and struggled a little bit at Texas last week. So that uh, the, accounts for the two-spot bump for the Hokies. Uh, Oklahoma State plays West Virginia this week, though. So if they beat West Virginia, I could very easily see Oklahoma State jumping them again. Where where does Tech actually rank in the actual rank? They are 13th in 13th. both the coaches and the AP poll. Okay, so, so I have them a little bit higher than they are nationally. I think people still have Washington ahead of them. I don't. I'm skeptical of that. Washington hasn't beaten anybody this year. Uh, has a, a pretty bad loss to an Arizona State team that I don't think is that good. Uh, Washington started higher, so I think that's why they stay higher than Virginia Tech right now. But I think if you compare those two teams and and kind of take out the fact that Washington was in the playoff last year, because I think people figure that in, uh, just looking at what they've done this year, I I couldn't really rank Washington higher than Virginia Tech. All right, well, before we get to our predictions in just a minute here, Halloween is on deck here. Your daughter, Emily, is 19 months old. This is she's moving almost twenty. She's moving cl- into prime time for for Halloween. My my kids are twelve and nine. They're mo- almost moving out of Halloween time. Yes, yeah, pushing it. Are you excited about Halloween? Yeah, it should be fun. I like Halloween. I enjoyed I it. it. We went out last year. I pulled her around in a wagon in the neighborhood. She was a strawberry. She had no idea what was going on. We were some friends that a little bit older and understood Halloween. So we just kind of walked around in in the pumpkin or the strawberry outfit and. I don't think she understood why she was wearing this and being pulled around in a wagon <laughs> at night. Uh, this year, she has a flamingo costume. You know, just what Target has. Those are our costumes. I, she kind of has like a mullet and like not a lot of hair on top and a blonde hair. So I thought about dressing her up like Hulk Hogan because she has the perfect hair for it. If I just put a little blonde goatee on it and like a, a Hulkamania shirt, I thought it would have been great. Uh, my wife wasn't too into that idea. So alas, that one's on the cutting board floor. Uh no, I, I think it should be fun. She's going to go as a flamingo. She'll probably walk around. I don't think she understands the concept uh, of receiving candy. Like, we don't give her candy yet. You know, she's still maybe like a cookie here and there, but not like the packaged candy. She hasn't uh, discovered that joy in life. Uh, so if she's going to go around and get all this stuff from people, I feel like she's going to be like taking stuff out of her, you know, little pumpkin bag that's around there and handing it to people <laughs> instead of them handing it to her. Uh, once she discovers the concept of candy and everything, it's it's going to be like show's over. Like, all right, this is the greatest thing ever. Was, what was that Jerry Seinfeld bit back in the day? He's like, you ever remember the first time you discover the concept of Halloween? It's like people are giving out candy. Everyone we know is just giving out candy. It's like that. I, I feel like that's what her reaction will be to this thing when she, when she does figure it out. Yeah, Halloween's my favorite holiday of the year. It, it's number one. 
Number and, one. And this is my annual reminder. There's two under the radar videos, movies. I'm a big horror fan. The two under the radar ones you should watch if you're into that stuff. Trick or treat. Trick hyphen R treat. Excellent. Is that a dance battle movie between uh, two rival Halloween gangs, or it's like it's like three intertwined stories? Uh, it's, it's it's fantastic. I highly recommend it. It's a, sort of under the radar, and the other is very under the radar. I would say watch it and uh, Grinch Grinch Night, which is basically the Halloween version of the Grinch who stole Christmas. It's Dr. Seuss. It's got the Grinch coming down off the mountain. It's actually kind of spooky, and I showed it to my kids the other night. They liked it. I thought we could say I showed it to my kids, scared the hell out of them, and that's Halloween. I'll folks. be honest with you, it scared the hell out of me. It was scarier than Trick or Treat was. Uh, it's it's pretty scary. The 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 denouement of the story is kind of scary. Okay, but, so, so watch, not not for the littlest one. So watch Trick or Treat, step up to the streets, and what was the second one? Grinch time. It's called Grinch Night. It, Grinch I think it's Night. Called Halloween is Grinch Night. I think is the name, which is not very catchy, but uh, it's a horrible you can title. find it on YouTube. It's about thirty minutes. Who workshop that title? That's among the worst titles I've ever heard. If you guys watch those and you you like them, give me or you don't like them, give me some feedback. I wanna I wanna have some testimonials I can use next year when I bring these up. All right, time for our predictions. Virginia Tech is favored by 15 and a half, which I'm very pleased with because that means we can use that stat once again that they've been favored in six of their eight games by at least two touchdowns. Uh, Andy, which way are you going on that spread? I was going to go not picking Duke to win. Pick Virginia Tech to win, but Duke to cover. And then we had a little discussion beforehand, and your thought was Virginia beat these guys. (laughs) I said, you're right. (laughs) I'm going to pick Virginia Tech to, to win and cover. I'll go 34 to 16. It's not covering by a lot. Maybe it's more than that. You know, they were really rolling last week. I know this has been a tight series, but Duke just lost a pit last week at home. They've not been very good. Four straight losses. Uh, I think a, a fairly still well-rested Virginia Tech team will roll in this one. Yeah, I don't think this is one you need to overthink too much. They're not as bad as UNC, but they're bad enough to lose by more than 15 and a half. I'm going to go Virginia Tech 42 to 10. This will be the one that a uh, big one that really puts a margin on that on that series margin that you were talking about earlier. It's going to really uh, put a gash in that. Yeah, I mean, for the longest time, that ECU series was like right there. It was, it was back and forth. ECU won a couple, Virginia Tech won, and then just the Hokies turned that series to dust the last couple of years. I wonder if they maybe can create some separation like that in this Duke series where it's been really close and they haven't been able to really figure Duke out. I feel like this may be the year that they could they could put a big number on them. Both. Yeah, I don't think that uh, – that, um, Duke's – his name is escaping me, Duke's coach. David Cutcliffe. I don't think Cutcliffe has folded the tents like it looks like Fedora. Just I think Fedora knows that you know just nothing going to happen for him this season. But I just don't think Duke has the horses that it's had in recent years to make make a really good game out of this. And you know, lest we forget, back in the day, I mean, when Duke was Duke, you know, the Tech would win this game by thirty five every year if they played it. Well, remember, was it you? maybe it was Nathan that I was walking out of the stadium with. I, I can't remember. It's like, well, did this UNC game tell us anything about Virginia Tech? Maybe the UNC told us a lot about the rest of the coastal division. Yeah. Uh, you know, Duke didn't blow out UNC. Virginia didn't blow out UNC. You know, it's been close games with them. Duke and, and Virginia were close games. Duke and Pitt were close games. Maybe just those teams are a, a good step below where Miami and Virginia Tech are in the division. I also put Georgia Tech up in that upper echelon of the division. I mean, Miami beat this Duke team soundly uh, in Durham 31-6. to It was a Friday night game. 
I believe, uh, about a month ago. Uh, maybe that should just be sort of the reference point that, hey, I think Miami and Virginia Tech are a good deal better than these teams at the lower half of the Coastal Division. So I, I'm glad that you pointed out, hey, Virginia beat these guys because it made me sort of rethink like, yeah, I, I think I'm falling into that trap of, of thinking of what it was like last year and how close it was. I think if you look at these two teams this year, it should be a, a comfortable margin. Yeah, we'll see if that's the case and we'll see if Virginia Tech can hang on to or enhance its ranking and we'll be back next week to talk it all over check out our coverage on roanoke.com for andy bitter this is aaron mcfarling we'll see you next time